Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. On today's show, I'm talking to Jess Ekstrom. She's the founder of Headbands of Hope and the author of the best-selling book, Chasing the Bright Side, Embrace Optimism, Activate Your Purpose, and Write Your Own Story. You know I'm a naturally cynical podcast host, but I love today's conversation because Jess really gets honest about her origin story, which has been featured in People Magazine. And then she also talks a little bit about what it was like to found a company that is a for-profit organization, but has a purpose-driven mission. And then she talks a little bit about the purpose and the process behind writing her new book. She's also a speaker coach, so we talk a little bit about that. And I just think it's a really fun conversation. So if you're interested in a little optimism in 2020, well, sit tight and I'll be right back with Jess Ekstrom and more of Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. And so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Jess, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm a longtime fan of yours. And although we are sort of neighbors through the Raleigh area, you are not in Raleigh today. Jess, where are you calling in from? I'm using air quotes as I say calling. Well, I am in San Diego, California in my Airstream trailer that my husband and I have been traveling in since we left Raleigh. I mean seven months ago, we've been on the road. It's been quite the adventure. Amazing, amazing. Well, I can't wait to hear more about it. Let's give everybody a good taste of who you are and what you're all about. You've got an interesting career journey and origin stories. So Jess, like you fixed work for yourself. What's your story all about? So I guess my story really begins when I was in college at North Carolina State in Raleigh, where I met you. And I was doing an internship freshman year in Disney World. And I loved it. I was a photo pass photographer. If you've ever been to Disney World and those obnoxious people that want to take your picture at the time, <laughs> that was me. But I got to take pictures of people from all over the world. And I just loved working for this company that I learned so much from. But my favorite thing that I got to do was I got to photograph kids that were there on their wish through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And so I fell in love with this foundation. And I got back to school my sophomore year and I interned for Make-A-Wish. And one of the things that I found was kids that were losing their hair to chemotherapy would be offered wigs and hats. When a lot of them I would see in their pictures or see them come into the office wearing headbands... And I just thought it was the coolest gesture of confidence that they wanted to wear headbands and not cover up their head. They just wanted to kind of have a style to them. And so I, in this like knee-jerk reaction, really no thought at all, which I think was actually to my advantage. I thought, oh, I could, I could provide headbands for kids with cancer. It wasn't this like grand plan. I wasn't like scheming for months. I just decided I was going to start a company and provide headbands for kids with cancer. The founder of Tom Shoes, Blake, had just spoken at my school about this one-for-one model that he started and that he wants other companies to adopt the same thing. So I said, I'll start a company called Headbands of Hope. And for every headband sold, we donate one to a child with cancer. And that we launched almost eight years ago today. 
Wow, that's a long time. Can you tell me how you know you're making a difference? There are a lot of people out there who start organizations and companies for philanthropic purposes or for purely capitalistic purposes, and they have different benchmarks of success. So how do you know that you're making a difference? And how do you know that you're building a solid organization and building a legacy? I think because the initial spark was about filling a need and not a business idea. I think that there are a lot of people out there that focus on thinking about how can I start a business? You know, how can I be self-employed? What can I do to make money? And those are all, I think, like the second questions you should be asking. The first question is, what problem can I solve? And then the next question is, what business can I create to solve that problem? So I think that Because I started this initial idea with filling a need, I think that at its core, Headbands of Hope has always been a philanthropic company. And I use the word company, you know, emphatically because we're not a nonprofit. We're a for-profit company because one of the things I believe in is that you shouldn't have to choose between making a living and making a difference. You should be able to do both at once. And so I think that building this company around this philanthropic mission and and breeding it into our business model made sure of it. And I think like our idea of success is eventually being able to go out of business. It would be a great day to just have a cure for cancer and not have to give headbands anymore. And so I think our definitions of success are also different. And I will say like one of the common practices that we use at Headbands of Hope is we follow one metric and that is how many headbands are we donating? Because that is the single metric that shows the entirety of the company, sales, marketing, everything like that. And so that is the number that we focus on, which is now over half a million, which is exciting. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. I know that your platform has recently expanded and that you're selling headbands in a new and interesting way. So can you tell us a little bit about being on QVC? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was like one of those things. It was almost a joke in the beginning. We're like, wouldn't it be great if we could go on QVC? And just thought it was this long shot goal. And we had applied in the past, never got it. And one day my team was at this trade show and this buyer came by from QVC and it piqued her interest. And, you know, we sent some samples and one thing, it was a over a year process to get on the show. And now we've been on it three times in the past three months. So I think you could say we're, we're regulars now, but it was one of those moments where like when I first got started, I had never envisioned this level of success for Headbands of Hope. So you've had some great success on the business side in 2019. And as we start 2020, you've got this book out on the market that's an Amazon bestseller called Chasing the Bright Side. So can you tell us a little bit about what it's about and who you're writing for? So I wrote Chasing the Bright Side because I was exhausted over the same success narrative. You know, I would listen to podcasts, I would hear people and they would say, well, well, one day I got this idea. And the next day, you know, we just can't keep inventory in stock. We're just selling left and right. And Oprah keeps calling me. And it was just like (laughs) this overnight success story that I was hearing from all these different people. So then when I started failing at things, or I would mess up, I would think like, this is only happening to me. You know, and this is clearly because I'm not qualified to be doing what I'm doing. And so I finally came to this realization that success isn't about the absence of resistance. It's just the navigation of it. 
But in order for us to be resilient in that, we have to be optimistic because optimism is not about being happy all the time. It's this strategy that we use for better. So chasing the bright side is how we can channel that optimism to create the better world that we want to live in. So it shares the story of Headbands of Hope, but it also shares just some other trying times in my life. My family was involved in a very public scandal when I was in high school and something that you just... I thought would never happen to me. And when those things do happen to you, or when you do realize that life isn't all hearts and flowers, it kind of presents you with the choice, whether that's an excuse to do less or the reason to do more. And so chasing the bright side is how can we train ourselves as the reason to do more? You know, a lot of people think that optimism comes from a place of privilege, like you have to have everything going right for you in order to be optimistic. It's like a chicken and an egg thing. But you just mentioned that your family was involved in a very public scandal. And I know you've talked about this before, but can you talk a little bit about that? Because I can imagine that that's a part of your story that really informed you, especially being in high school. Yeah. And that's such a great way to present that question too, because one of the concerns that I had writing this book was I didn't want people to think, oh, this is a book that's just going to tell me to like drink more water and be happy <laughs> because that's just not where I'm at. And then, and if anything, there's this like guilt that you feel when you're not happy all the time because you feel like you should be happy all the time. So I start the book with really coming forward about this scandal, if you will. I hate the word scandal, but there's really no other word for it that happened 10 years ago. And you can read in the book or you can see it. I did an exclusive with People Magazine, which was interesting. But my uncle is Bernie Madoff. And so if you're unfamiliar with who that is, he's the biggest financial fraud in history. So it was such a rattling time for my family and something that really was one single experience that completely changed our story. So I think starting a book about optimism with a story that... I was wanting to be anything but optimistic, hopefully shows that optimism is not about a mood. It's more about a strategy. And that strategy is most important in times of need. Well, I'm thinking about your story that you've presented. You know, you've gone through this experience with your family where someone else really shaped a sense of security really upended your family and upended them emotionally, financially, spiritually, I would imagine. And then you go to college and you decide to work on Headbands of Hope. You've been through this really fantastic journey and now you're an author. Did you feel like being an author was part therapy for you? Because <laughs> I can Honestly, imagine writing this book was very cathartic. Oh my gosh. It was the healthiest I've ever been mentally was the year I spent writing this book because I would wake up at five every day and write for two or three hours before my day began, before I started getting, you know, the Slack messages and the emails and the phone calls. I just had that moment to myself. And honestly, I wasn't sure if I wanted to include Bernie in the book, but I knew that if I was going to write about optimism, I had to write about how I got there. But I also wasn't really sure at the time, but then forcing myself to write was also forcing myself to digest. And so I think outside of writing a book, just developing like a daily practice of writing was so therapeutic for me. And I'll admit I've fallen a little bit off the bandwagon since I turned the manuscript in, but <laughs> right. I was like, man, I got to write another book. I got to get back there. But yeah, it was 
very therapeutic for me. Well, I hear you mention that you wrote before your actual full-time day job. And I think a lot of people come to me, you know, and talk about writing and talk about being a creative person, but say, I don't have enough time. There aren't enough hours in the day. And here you are, you woke up in the morning before work. And I realize not everybody can do that. But that may surprise some people that you wrote a best-selling book and still kept your day job. So what are other things that people don't know about being an author? Like what are some things that surprised you? I think that I oftentimes got like my best writing done in transit. So if you travel a lot for work, if you take planes or trains or anything like that, like I got some of my best writing done when I was in airplane mode. So I think that if that is any form of part of your job, or if you can carve out any time to just open your laptop and just have a date with you and your thoughts, I think make that time for sure. Oh, I love that. I love that. Now, your book, Chasing the Bright Side, is available anywhere books are available. And I wonder if you can offer us some tactical tips that are in your book to practice optimism in our daily lives and more specifically in our jobs. So one of the things that I like to give as a tactical piece of advice that we can all try to do today that I actively try to do as well, just because I'm writing about it doesn't mean that I'm perfect at anything, but (laughs) is audit the thing that you're chasing. So whether that's in your work or in your life, what is the thing that you're chasing right now? And if no one knew about it, does it still matter to you? So for example, in my work, I was chasing a lot of accolades for a while. I was in the running for this magazine cover and I completely let it consume my life and my whole mental state. And sometimes when we chase things, we forget if this is for ourselves or if this is for others. And so audit the things that you're chasing and then ask yourself if no one knew about it, would it still matter? And I get that with our different jobs and different work, that there are some things that we have to do, but I challenge you to try to attach meaning to it. Try to attach the people behind each tangible task to who are you serving. And so it helps kind of take our assigned work and make it more meaningful. I love that. And I love this message of service throughout all of your work. You speak about it eloquently up on stage and you speak about it in your book. And I just wonder how the act of service can help someone fix their bad job because the numbers show that work is broken for so many people. And I wonder if there's a way to infuse service to help fix work. So I love that you asked that because one of my favorite parts of my speech that I give is about this study at Yale where they interviewed hospital custodians. And one pool of people hated their job. They just were super unhappy. And when they asked them what they did every day, one of them said that they take out the trash, you know, I, I clean the floors, I change the sheets. Okay, why do you do it? Well, I have to pay the bills. I need to have benefits so I can support my family. And then they asked these people what their job titles were. And one of them said that he was a janitor, another person said maintenance worker, custodian. And then they asked another pool of people who had the exact same job, same assigned work, same job description, but they loved their job. And when asked some of the things that they did every day, one of them worked in hospice care and she would shuffle around the artwork from room to room every week so that her patients would have something different to look at. And another person carried around a notepad and would tally which rooms got visitors that day, circle the ones that didn't, so he could make it a point to spend more times in the rooms that didn't get visitors that day. And then the other one took it upon himself to 
educate himself about all the chemicals being used in his cleaning guys so he can make sure to not use any cleaning product that would irritate any of his patients. And when they were asked what their job titles were, this is my favorite part, one person described herself as an ambassador of the hospital and another person described himself as a healer. And so all of these people had the exact same assigned work, but the people who were truly happy and fulfilled in their job chose not to look at their job as a job, but as a service to humanity. So I like to challenge people like, what are the things that you do in your job every day that you can flip into a service to the people? And that's how we can truly fall in love with what we're doing. Oh, I love it. I mean, that's so... Well, it's so different from the ordinary way that people go about work. And I think we're in this weird situation where our economy has really not picked up for so many people in these service-oriented jobs. Wages have not kept up. But I think there's still something to be said for even though the circumstances of your work, of your wages may be onerous or taxing, there's still an attitude that you can choose. I don't know. What do you think about that? I believe... Fullheartedly believe in it. And I think it also depends on our definition of service and giving back. Because I think that the connotation for a lot of it means to people that I have to have financial means in order to give back, or I need to be able to retire or do something or move to a third world country in order to do something meaningful. But meaningful work is not something that is assigned to us or that we have to wait for. It's something that is created by us and it's a mindset. And it might not be our boss telling us, okay, that you're going to be involved in this end of year charity project. It's what are the things that we do every day that we can focus on the people behind it. And I think that if that is our definition of giving back is just serving humankind, then we're able to do that at any rate and at any job I mean, my husband for a while, he did cold calling for um, a sales job that he was in. But every single cold call that he had, he tried to make them laugh. He tried to brighten up their day in some way. And that was meaningful to him. So I think it's changing the way that we think about meaningful work and giving back. Well, I love that you're strong on this message of service. And I love that it's one of the keynotes that you offer. You are certainly an inspiration to so many people, just including me as an entrepreneur, as a woman, as a leader. And I know, in fact, a few women who have worked with you to think about how they can evangelize their own message and start their own speaking career. Because I think one of the things that you've done is make speaking accessible to anybody who has an idea, anybody who has a thought. So what advice do you have for our audience? And if they're interested in public speaking, just like you, and have thoughts on service, leadership, the future of work, how can you help them achieve that dream of being up on stage talking about their passion? Yeah, I, I was something that I started doing just as a way in the beginning to get the word out about Headbands of Hope. And then it's turned into this completely other career path that I've loved so much. And what what I think people sometimes miss is that they feel like getting a keynote speaker means like expert lecturing, that you have to have all of this information and research about a particular topic and you have to have a library named after you in order to talk about it. But really, keynote speaking is about inspirational storytelling. So your unique stories that you've experienced, how can you face them outward to serve others? So Another thing to remember is that your story is also not your audience. For example, if you are an athlete and your story about going to the Olympics or whatever it might be, you don't have to just speak to athletes. What is it about your story that 
anyone can relate to, that anyone can learn from. Because that's one of the mistakes that I see sometimes with speakers is that they feel like whoever they are, whatever they've experienced, that's who they should be speaking to. But I've often found, and you've probably found this as well, is sometimes it's quite the opposite. Like I get booked to speak at places who the audience is nothing like me. And that's why they're bringing me in is because they want something different. So how can you use your story and face it outward? And that's why I started Mic Drop Workshop, which is an online course to help women become keynote speakers and get paid to do it is because there needs to be more women on stages sharing their stories and influencing change. I love it. I cannot disagree with you at all. I mean, 100%. And I think one of the interesting things is to see the women who have taken your course and then continue to evangelize it over Instagram, over Twitter, over Facebook. What do you think it is about your course that inspires people to, I don't know, go outside of their comfort zone and do interesting things? I hope that it makes them feel like they have something to say, because I think historically women have felt silenced and felt like we need to leave it to the experts or felt like our voice isn't heard. And so I hope that Mic Drop Workshop not only gives them like the tools, like contracts, negotiation tips, where, you know, who books speakers, but also just empowering them to believe that their unique story needs to be heard. And so the first part of the course is about storytelling and finding that message that you want to share. And the second part of it is selling it. And it's funny because most people sign up for the course for the second part. They're like, oh, I just need the contracts. I need to know what to charge, how to close deals. That's all I need. But it's the first part of the course that actually really gets them and starts to shape their speaking career is figuring out what is it that I want to say. Yeah, that is definitely a significant challenge. And I know that once your community kind of nails it, they follow you along your journey and you follow them as well. And you've created this kind of movement of speakers, of women, of entrepreneurs, of people who really believe in this message that speaking of entrepreneurship is accessible to them. And you have an event coming up in 2020. So can you tell us a little bit about it and who is it for? Yes, March 21st and 22nd, I am hosting the Brightside Conference in Raleigh. This is my first event that I'm hosting of this scale, and it has been an emotional roller coaster to say the least. So many moving parts, but I'm so excited for the day to finally come. So, the Brightside Conference is for women who go to bed asking themselves the question like, Am I doing enough? How many times have you closed your eyes like with that weight on your shoulders? I know that I go to bed every night feeling like, what what more could I have done? And really, it's not about doing more. It's about doing what's right. So what is meaningful to us? How can we feel good about that? How can we take care of ourselves? So Saturday is the bulk of our program with keynote speakers. We have Natalie Frank from Rising Tide. We have Ashley Lemieux with The Shine Project. We have tons of amazing speakers. And then on Sunday is a self-care day. So we'll have yoga classes. We'll have Lululemon giving out self-care products, chair massages. So it's going to be really fun. So you can go to brightsideconference.com to check out more about it. Well, that sounds really great. It sounds like you have a pretty amazing 2020 planned. Beyond the conference, beyond the book, are those the things you're most excited about? Anything else that we've missed? I feel like every time, you know, the calendar just, I've always had these like goals or thing that I grip really tightly, you know, for what I want to do next year or five-year plan or whatever it is. And I've stopped 
doing that just because I've felt like holding myself accountable to very like specific things has also led me to be closed off of like what else is out there and things that I don't know yet. So one of the parts of the book that I talk about is we can't let our plans kill our possibilities. And so I tend to get really, really attached to outcomes. And so I'm trying to be pretty loose about 2020 and just see what comes my way. Well, I'm definitely bullish on your future, Jess. I think it sounds like a pretty good year that you're going to have. And if people want to learn more about you or are interested in the book or the conference, where can they find you? Yes, I would love to hear from you. You can go to jessextrum.com. Also go to headbandsofhope.com. Find me on, on Instagram, really any social platform except for Snapchat. I haven't hopped on that train yet, but definitely Instagram. <laughs> well, I'll make sure we have all of that in the show notes. And I want to thank you again for being a guest today on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for having me. I have enjoyed talking to you. All right, everybody. We'll be right back right after the break with more Let's Fix Work. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jess Ekstrom of Headbands of Hope. If you want to learn more about her book or her speaker coach class or her upcoming event or all things Jess Ekstrom, you can head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash Let's Fix Work dash 90. Let's Fix Work was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina and San Diego, California, and produced by Danny Osmond and his team in Orlando, Florida. It truly takes a village to get this podcast up and running and out the door. If you have any feedback, send us an email at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.